Greetings and welcome to The Feminist Present, the podcast where we try to use the gift of feminism to figure out what is going on right now. I am your faithful co-host, Laura Good, and I am not joined by my co-host, Adrian Dow, because he's on a vacation for the first time in the entire time that I've known him. I shouldn't even tell you. I'm sure he's really uncomfortable that I just did, but I'm really happy for him because everybody is dealing with just really unprecedented levels of burnout right now, or at least I am. Wildfires are raging in California, air quality is very bad, and everybody's kind of in the struggles, man. But even before all these wildfires came down, we at the Clayman Institute for Gender Research hosted an event that has been incredibly dear to Adrian's heart and hopping in our DMs for many months, Debate Me! Exclamation point, featuring two incredible writers, Moira Weigel and Neela. Just to tell you a little bit about those folks so I don't fail to do so later, Moira Weigel is a writer, translator, and scholar currently at the Harvard Society of Fellows. I don't know if any of you guys have ever heard of Harvard. She is is best known for her incredible book, Labor of Love, The Invention of Dating, which I read and loved. And funny story about Moira is she is actually part of how Adrian and I met. Adrian and I originally met when he signed up for a class I was teaching online with Catapult. And in his like response to the intro questionnaire for this class, he mentioned something about being a feminist in the Bay Area. And my response to that was sort of like, well, then it seems inevitable that we will meet. And that was like, what I said on the surface, but because he's not here to make me feel awkward about saying this, I will say that like when this guy that I had never met was like, I'm a feminist in the Bay Area. I'm the director of feminist gender and sexuality studies at Stanford University. I was kind of like, okay, buddy. And I wasn't, I wasn't sure if I believed him listeners, but then destiny intervened. And about a week after we had that email exchange, I ran into Adrian at Moira's birthday party. And I was like, well, you must be legit after all. So Moira Weigel is not only an acclaimed author, but also a uh, feminist credibility booster for Adrian and I assume many others. Moira is joined by Nie Ley, who is a journalist, host, and public speaker from Leipzig, Germany. Most of the bylines that I'm seeing before me are in German, and I don't want to butcher it. So suffice it to say, she is very well regarded for her work on feminism and racism and an incredible interlocutor for this conversation. You might be, I mean, I don't want to presume, but maybe you'll be a little confused as to why this event is called Debate Me. And I think what we really wanted to capture at Clayman were some of the perils of being a feminist with opinions online. I think it's very well known that women writers especially suffer a great deal of harassment and abuse online just for, you know, daring to exist. And in this conversation, the speakers got into these sort of taxonomies of reply guys. You know, what are the different kind of people who show up to educate you or, well, actually, or all of these different ways that misguided people interact with women in public spaces. They go into this with a great deal more eloquence than I can, but suffice it to say that Adrian does call our current era the golden age of taxonomy (laughs) in the conversation you're about to hear, and I was pretty excited about that. So... The last thing I wanted to mention was in this sort of entre season, August sort of floating atmosphere that we have you in right now before we debut our official season two later this fall, 
we do have two other really exciting Clayman conversations coming up on Wednesday, August 26th at 4 p.m. Pacific time. We will be hosting the Turf Industrial Complex, Transphobia, Feminism, and Race, featuring some incredible guests, including Dr. Grace Lavery, who you might know is the spouse of our previous guest, Daniel Lavery, keeping it in the family here at the Feminist Present. Anyway, Grace is, you know, a trans person online, so even just posting this event and her gracious effort to help us promote it garnered her all sorts of harassment and abuse. So if you would like to take a critical eye to that and maybe like just direct a little bit, if you are a turf listening to this, like please just like direct the ire at us, the organizers of the event and not gracious and wonderful Grace who is being so generous with her time. So strange. It's it's almost like we're living the principles of the things we're discussing in these events, you guys. I don't know if you picked up on that theme. Last thing, on Wednesday, September 9th, noon Pacific time, very exciting event, departmentalize now, exclamation point, the imperative for African and African American studies. Listen, the departmentalization of African and African American studies at Stanford has been a very long road. It has not been officially departmentalized yet. You might notice, I don't know, critical listeners might notice that Stanford also does not have an official department or tenure track for feminist gender and sexuality studies, where Adrian and I both teach. I mean, call me crazy. Maybe these things are sort of like related in the sort of thought family that people don't take things like feminist and gender studies and African and African American studies. Some people don't think those are as important as other things. We are not among those people. So on Wednesday, September 9th, please join us for Departmentalize Now! Exclamation point, the imperative for African and African American studies. And then after that, in October, maybe September, I don't know what time is anymore, we will be back at you with some more incredible interviews with feminists who I still can't believe agree to talk to us. It's really, really wild. Thank you so much for joining us yet again. Without further ado, here is Reply Guy, Professor Adrian Daub, talking to Neele and Moira Weigel. I want to welcome everyone to the first Clayman Conversation online. I'm extremely excited for this event. And now let me introduce briefly our amazing speakers for today before I say a little bit about the topic. So Neele is a German journalist and a researcher who's worked extensively on online harassment around racism, sexism, and new media, and who's joining us from Leipzig, Germany today, where it's 9 p.m., Thank you for making the time in your evening. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be here and that I'll be able to discuss with you guys today. Fantastic. And Maura Weigel is joining us from, wait, are you in New York or Massachusetts? You're somewhere on the Eastern Seaboard. An undisclosed location on the Eastern Seaboard. Undisclosed, okay. (laughs) Undisclosed location, a bunker somewhere on the Eastern Seaboard. Maura is a academic and writer, author of Labor of Love and of the forthcoming Voices from the Valley, coming October 13th, I think. Mm. And I really couldn't imagine a better crew (laughs) to discuss this question problem today. I want to get into the discussion as quickly as humanly possible, but I do want to say a little bit in terms of the framing. Most people understood what we were going for with this topic, but I realized it wasn't like totally obvious. And so I just wanted to sort of do a little bit of framing what got us interested in this. And the idea really is that I think that we're kind of living through a golden age of taxonomy. We're really, we've become really good at naming stuff. 
some of that's the internet, some of it's social networks, also just these new discourses around gender and race and organizing around gender and race, right? Me Too and Black Lives Matter both are really good at sort of naming things, not that naming things that no one had previously noticed, but things that sort of had been part of the ambient noise of a racist and sexist society. And now suddenly you have this ability to sort of point to something, right? Think of the term like gaslighting, how that suddenly made behaviors extremely easily nameable and therefore critiquable, mansplaining, right? Like once that was there, you couldn't stop seeing it. I mean, people had obviously observed it before, but like suddenly here's a way to sort of operationalize the critique. And then most recently, I had to think of Karen, right? Which powerfully sort of just kind of created this handy descriptor for a range of behaviors that can be used to call out others, right? And that can be used to self-monitor. Am I being a Karen right now? Right? And so there's this kind of power in naming. And I think it's a power, and we'll have to talk about that, that is not just about what the term denotes, but also about the shareability of this identification, being able to say, I've observed this too. And this is where we get to someone like the reply guy or the debate me bro, right? It's something that is probably as old as as men, I'm going to guess, but that has become identifiable and sort of critiquable in a different way. I want to just bring in two data points just to sort of get the conversation going. There was a very funny Twitter thread a couple of weeks ago, by now a month ago, I think. I don't know. Time is a flat circle. There was a Twitter thread about types of taxonomies of reply guys. So the kinds of people who would comment on tweets that were clearly not really reaching out for replies. And this is by a comedian from London, Suze Kempner, who has this long list. I'm going to just share a couple of these. And what I really want to get at is the fact that with all of these, we've seen them, right? We're like, oh, yeah, that person. Oh, yeah, that guy, you know, the punch it up reply guy. That's someone who restates your joke, but supposedly funnier. The unsolicited advice reply guy, the fact check reply guy, the change the subject reply guy, the over familiar reply guy. The personally attacked reply guy, the life story reply guy, the ask you on a date reply guy. I have not gotten this, this yet. <laughs> that takes it literally reply guy, right? And, and it goes on and on and on. And I think it's a really interesting kind of moment where you can name these and they become recognizable. But at the same time, I think that the bigger question of how come we live with these and with this extremely broad range of them, I think that's the bigger question for me. Like, how has this worked, right? And I realize that the debate me bro, though he likewise makes his habitat in the comments under your tweets, is kind of a distinct species from the reply guy. But what strikes me is the breadth here, immediate recognizability, but at the same time, the strangeness of it once you sort of do point to it. There's something exceedingly kind of quotidian about what she's describing, but it feels deeply revealing about power and the perception of power about expertise and who is assumed to have expertise. And above all, I would say about communication and the pretense of communication, right? Because one thing that to me as a college professor is always really interesting about the reply guy is that, of course, the reply guy pretends or appears to, I, I don't even really want to come down one way or the other on this, but resembles an activity that I encourage in my students, right? What could be nicer and more sort of conducive to the free exchange of ideas than replying to someone's thesis with a helpful clarification, right? And yet that's clearly not what's going on. We're all supposed to like free and open debate. And 
what's wrong with someone saying, and why won't you debate me, right? And so I think I might just open the conversation by asking this very basic and maybe a little dumb question, but what's wrong with the reply guy and the debate you broke? Laura, do you want to go first? Either way, I'm happy to. Thank you so much for having us. I've been looking forward to this conversation, and despite its idiosyncrasies, love the framing of the topic as well. What's wrong with replying or demanding debate? Sometimes nothing, I would say. I think as we think about these kinds of behaviors that in our era of taxonomies and micro-sociologies have gotten easier to name, to my mind, everything comes down to context. I was interested in the wording of your question by this word just, Mm -hmm. you know, this claim that I'm just asking questions and what the difference, what a speaker is getting at when they emphasize that they're just asking questions. I'm distracted by remembering a long time ago when I wrote my first book, which was partly about dating and social media, about how people talked about just sex. And I came to the conclusion there's no such thing as just sex. Sex is always in excess of the just. It's never just in itself. And perhaps I'm now thinking just asking a question is the same thing. The ways we communicate and ask questions are always situated and communicate a meaning in excess of the words in them. So I think the defensive move that one's just asking a question often already signifies that there was something more going on than the precise content of the question that was said. So it all depends on context. (laughs) Yeah, I would agree. And sometimes I think you can distinguish really easily If somebody is just interested in a nice conversation and interested in learning something, or if they try to mock you, or if they try to question your knowledge about this certain topic, I think a lot of reply guys have a very, especially on Twitter, they have a very certain passive aggressive tone once they reply to you. And yeah, I think a very common thing where it can turn into misogyny real quickly is when they accuse you of just trying to get attention for your topic or if they accuse you of a lack of knowledge they think they can just run to your dms or into your comments on twitter or anywhere else to teach you a thing or two about those kind of things implying that in fact you are not an expert in that there's two different sorts of replying if you're just nice and asking something because you really didn't understood, I think that's kind of fine. Or if you really want to add something in a more humble way, I think that's okay too. But if you make the whole topic about yourself, and if you're just there to reply and to show off your own knowledge by mocking the speaker, then that's not even nice anymore. There's a presumption of entitlement to someone's time as well that's often conveyed in the replies and the demand or request to be debated. And I think we can distinguish between valuing free and open discourse from the assumption that everyone gets to be heard by everyone all the time. So there's also a certain claim on on a journalist's or an academic's or a speaker's time that can be made implicitly if not explicitly by a kind of unwelcome persistence. This is really interesting because I think a lot of people do have this entitlement. Once you're just a person online, they think that they're entitled to your time as in, well, you have an online personality, you have your own platform online, which means that you need to answer me or debate with me 24-7. So this entitlement, that is a real thing. It's interesting you say that because I think it gets us back to the question of power, right? 
one way in which human beings can check other people's entitlement to their time is through prestige, right? Like, do you have a right to claim my time? And one of the interesting things, I think, about the kind of discourse that we're talking about here is that it doesn't recognize, right, that it kind of creates a kind of false equivalence. I was thinking of, like, these people who, you know, tweet out their New York Times op-ed, and then, like, someone with, like, four followers, you know, who created, like, their account last week. It's like, why won't you reply to me? Or why won't you debate me on this? Like, I'm sorry, but who, who are you? You know, there's something kind of interesting there, too, right? That there is a deliberate disregard for, well, I don't want to say hierarchy, but again, for context, where obviously someone writes something that a million people read will not be able to reply to your questions about it. And it's just, there's not enough time. Although perhaps if they're a New York Times op-ed columnist, they will have time to link search and, uh, and reply to your comments, but you can never know for sure. I think usually I don't really make a difference between somebody with a lot of followers or yeah. almost no followers when it comes to a nice tone in your reply. And if the question is interesting and if I think that this could be interesting for other people who are reading this thread or who are coming across my tweets. But it is definitely true that people mm -hmm. who are sometimes people who recently just signed up to a platform think that, well, now I'm online, which means that everybody, they need to answer me. And I have so much time to be here online, which means that everybody else should have mm -hmm. this amount of time as well. And that is annoying. And it is interesting, too, because it kind of disregards the realities of media production as well, right? That the person whose time you're not quite wasting, but that you're making a claim on, of course, needs that time to get paid enough, which in journalism is really hard these days, right? So there's this other thing where you don't get paid for replies, <laughs> you get paid for the next piece you write. I think there is something really interesting, too, about the way that Twitter specifically describes itself as remediating certain kinds of public space. It struck me rereading the description of this event that it is sort of implicitly about Twitter that we're speaking, not about Facebook. Yeah. Uh, we're yeah, we're speaking right. about an asymmetric social network. We're speaking about one in which communications have that overheard quality that we associate with publicness. And I should say, I like Twitter a lot. I think every one of these criticisms, there's a sort of positive or utopian element to it, too. The interesting thing is that the bug is the feature. The good thing is also the bad thing. Yeah. But I've often thought of this the way that Jack Dorsey and others around Twitter have mobilized the metaphor of the public square and then thought, you know, embodied people inhabit public space very differently. And we can have the ideal that every kind of person feels an equal amount of safety and entitlement uh, to public space, but the street means something different, perhaps to a woman walking home at night or an African-American walking by some cops. You know, the street and public space means different things to different people at different times. And so this model of total openness that I think the public square and marketplace of ideas metaphor has sometimes been taken to carry tends to erase social differences, embodied differences that do actually have a lot of bearing on how we communicate there. Yeah, I mean, I think that's something that Ni gets at in her own research, right? Ni, you write on the way female journalists deal with online harassment. And one of the problems is, of course, that you mostly focus on Germany, I believe. And one of the problems, as I understand it, is that essentially there's very little support from the publishers of the actual media and a very little sort of awareness of the problem. So there's on the one hand, what Moira just said made me think of this, that on the one hand, there's this demand to be public about your work, to get it out there, but then kind of a blindness to the fact that who 
carries this stuff public, a lot of questions of identity and positionality sort of come into it. And people are going to have very different experiences. And then they're often sort of left hanging, right? Like sort of in the moment that the quote-unquote marketplace of ideas turns incredibly hostile. Yeah, I think when it comes to being online and advertising your own work as a journalist, I think to a certain extent, of course, you can decide if you want to do that. Or maybe you don't want to be online at all, and you just publish your work, and then you let the platform doing it. And if there's a publishing house or any medium that will have a Twitter account, they're tweeting this is our new article, but you yourself don't want to advertise it, that is fine. But honestly, I don't know too many journalists that do it like this, because if you are on Twitter, and I would say that Twitter is heavily used by journalists, then you're there to um, to advertise your own stuff and to participate in discourse and current discourse and also to get news and tips maybe. And I think especially if you are a freelancer, you need to do that even more because the newsroom might not support you that much if you are a freelancer writing for several different media. And I think if you want to be read, and I think at the end of the day, every journalist wants the audience to pay attention to their work then you kind of need to advertise it. And I think there's a current debate on how journalists turn into influencers or something like journalancers even. So you need to be online. But then if you are a female journalist that is online, you can get attacked in so many more ways. And I think there was some time when people thought, well, the internet, this is a place where those power structures don't apply. And this is really naive to think because the internet is just one part of society. And why should it be an empty room where those power structures of gender and in general, the patriarchy, why should this not apply? The problem why we see a lot of online misogyny still going on is because we, we live in a misogynist society anyway. So the internet is misogynist as well. And the way it works that you can reach so many people in such a short amount of time and that you can connect so fast, that is another factor. These are other factors that lead to online misogyny or make it very easy to target different women. And with journalists being online, the female journalists I was talking to for my thesis, they also said, well, I could decide not to be online, but then... I won't notice certain shifts in the discourse. Maybe people won't be able to reach me anymore and I can't advertise my work. And especially as a freelancer where I won't earn that much or I'm not in a secure position like others, I need to be online to make myself heard. And in the end, online misogyny aims at silencing women to push them out of the discourse, to push them out of the space that they created for themselves. I mean, you guys are aware of that anyway, but whenever we talk about that, we can't just say the internet is a safe space because it really isn't. <laughs> or it is for some people, clearly, but it matters tremendously what you need it for, how much you depend on it. And that's the thing that often I feel when engaging, which I try not to do, but engaging with trolls, right? That like, you know, on the one hand, they can't be anywhere else, but on the other hand, they could be anywhere else. If their account gets blocked, 
you know, whatever, that doesn't matter, right? Whereas, you know, if a journalist's account gets blocked, you know, it's obviously, it gets right at the center of their professional identity and of their work. Uh, Ni, I know that you, you were banned from Twitter <laughs> briefly. Do you want to walk us through what happened there? Because I think that's actually a really good illustration of what Mora was talking about. The way that context is wished away and neutrality ends up completely boomeranging and treating actually people quite differently. Can you say a bit more about that? Yeah. Well, there is a certain law in Germany, which is called the Netzdigi or the Netzwerk Durchsetzungsgesetz, a very long, a very typical German name, actually. And it is supposed to combat fake news, but mostly hate speech, like discriminatory language on social media platforms. And there are certain guidelines. And whenever you report this to your platform, and it doesn't matter if it's Facebook or Twitter or anything, those platforms are forced to react real quickly and to either dismiss or to delete that. Yeah, I think people thought that it would be a good idea, but even before this law or this bill was passed, a lot of people criticized it already and said, well, you know what, this will be utilized by trolls because once you can flag anything, once you can report anything, which leads to banning or being banned sometimes, if it's really severe, depending on what you wrote, then this will be a tool to silence minorities even more. And it actually went down the hill because some people even call the netzdigi hetzdigi. It rhymes and hetz, I think you can translate it with harass probably to the, to the harassment law because trolls, it has a certain political category and it is usually far right trolls mm -hmm. that utilize it to target their enemies, and this is usually minorities anyway. It is women, it is people of color, so of course it is women of color and progressive women of color online, especially on Twitter, that they target and they take anything from your tweets and take it out of context and then they report it for maybe violent language and then this content gets deleted and eventually you'll get blocked and this banned and this happened to me because at the beginning of the corona crisis there was a lot of or there is still a lot of racism targeting asian especially east and southeast asian people they were blamed for having the coronavirus for spreading the virus and i just wrote a rather snarky tweet and i said you can translate it to whoever wants to make jokes about asians and coronavirus gets slapped <laughs> i said um, and Schelle means you get slapped, but Schelle is also like a little bell or a little ring. So it had different meanings. And then it was online for, I guess, 10 days and it gathered, I don't know, maybe, yeah, 3,000 likes. And it was just online. And then it got mass reported because I think the number does matter, although Twitter says that it doesn't matter how many people reported, but I think regarding the Netzdigate, it really does. So I guess they're like real reporting armies, kind of, and they mass reported it for violent speech. And what happened is this Netzdigate, this law applied to my tweet, or Twitter applied it to my tweet, and I was banned from Twitter for a certain amount of time, which means that in the end, I was talking about racism and I expressed my frustration about that racism that was targeting people like me. And I got banned for that because those trolls, they know how to utilize it. They are really, really elaborate when it comes to 
the way how they express their hate, they know how to kind of cover it up or speak in codes. So they won't be reported by the Netzdigi. Their hate will remain online. Well, when I express my frustration in such a rather snarky way, but definitely not violent way, I will get banned. This is really frustrating. And I guess it still applies because this Netzdigi's law, they even added more to it this year. They had good intentions again, but I think now it is even worse. <laughs> What did they do? Well, now they applied this rule. It's called Gesetzespaket gegen Hass und Rechtsextremismus, which means certain laws against hate and far-right extremism. And they have some good rules or laws in there. But when it comes to the Netzdigi, I think that it is rather silly because they said that now whenever something is reported, Twitter is not even forced or all those platforms, they're not even forced to delete it or to take care of that. But now they immediately need to process the data to the authorities, which means that only because you get reported on a platform They are forced to give your data to the police, for example. And regarding privacy, this is really concerning. Well, and also in terms of actual abuse will be extremely hard to detect in a sea of fake reporting, right? One thing this makes me think of, and I know Mora has worked on this a bit, to what extent these kinds of abuses and the way people are forced to interact with them in some way has to do with channel consolidation, right? In some way that there is something here where if you could have said like, look, the way Twitter applies this law is bullshit. I'm moving over to another platform that is a little better with its policies and that gets the difference. You might've done that, right? But the thing is you can't quite, right? So is there something here, Mora, where our fora are actually just narrowing? We're actually, you know, the consolidation of the things that are happening around me here in Silicon Valley, right? Like drive some of these abuses? It's a terrific question. I was thinking there's so many things that I have to say about this question, but I think the short answer is yes, to an extent, certainly. I was thinking when he was talking about this reality that journalists and public intellectuals, various academics are put under all kinds of pressure by the institutions where they make their livelihoods to have a public presence, which true. means Twitter, or at least Twitter has a particular cachet that, for instance, Facebook doesn't. And then Instagram has its own different cachet, but the, you know, different platforms have different kinds of meanings. Adrian's colleague, Angel Christen, has done wonderful work on this and has a brand new book out called Metrics at Work for anyone who is interested in this about how journalists in different contexts make use of metrics. But anyway, workers in industries that are under threat, are precarious, are being disrupted in some cases by digital companies themselves, are under a lot of pressure to demonstrate impact in terms, ironically, of the very metrics that some of the companies eating those industries prioritize. But what this means effectively is that It would be hard, I think, professionally to opt out of many of these networks. And then as Adrian is saying, there aren't that many choices. A monopolistic concentration of these tech companies means that one can't actually just choose to go start a Mastodon instance or something and demonstrate impact in the same way one might on Twitter. And that certainly one way in which consolidation plays out and what's happening. I think another way that I've been thinking about a lot recently has to do with 
the ways in which we are overheard on Twitter. We might tweet back and forth, reply to our partners, host friends, but our communications there are overheard by others. Right. And there's a kind of flat and open model of, of sociality and sociability that does not resemble any pre-existing human social institution of which I am aware. I was thinking before this conversation that disagreement is important, and especially in feminist context, perhaps, it's really important to be able to have substantive disagreements and model disagreement, model conflict resolution. And I was trying to think of models of doing that, none of which are performing your position for your audience, the people who tune into your brand on this massive global platform. I think often the conditions that lead to sort of bad faith debate or bad faith questioning have to do with the ways in which on Twitter, when we appear to be talking to one another, we're often performing positions for our niche audiences in this public space. So anyway, I think... Yeah, I see monopoly and consolidation coming into play in at least those two respects. It's not actually voluntary. If you want to be an entrepreneur, if you want to be a freelance journalist, if you want to be an academic, increasingly, not to have a presence on these platforms. Well, more than a presence. I mean, I think that's a fascinating point you bring up. Yeah. A brand, right? You don't get to be silly and goof off because like, then the people who are pissed off by the other stuff you write will screenshot that, right? I mean, that's the other thing. Like, And I think their Facebook is still far more forgiving that sometimes people are like, here's my deeply held opinion. Mm-hmm. And then here is a picture of my cat. And Twitter, I feel like really there's a demand, especially for, I mean, I know it for academics, like there's a demand for for branding, for coherence there. And I do think that that's, that's even worse than just to say, you have to be there and do something. It's like, You have to present everything you do as part of the something you present. And again, I think about this so much around technological integration and sort of the weaving of these digital platforms into every space and aspect of our lives. But none of us, no human is the same person in every context. You know, I speak differently to my mother, to my partner, to my students, to a man who says something rude to me on the street. You know, these are all kinds of of interactions that are remediated on Twitter, but there's a collapsing of context that I think creates new kinds of vulnerabilities when all of those interactions are in one plane and unless you enact settings to make it otherwise, also searchable and screenshotable for all time, not a medium that is very friendly to actually productive resolution of disagreements in many cases, I think partly for that reason. I would definitely agree that whenever you are online, you are putting on some kind of performance. And I think on Instagram, at least this is my feeling, it's sometimes even worse than it's on Twitter because it's an image-based medium or video-based even. So content works better with your face being attached to it and I think for some people, they, they feel forced to talk about their content, to look right into the camera, to put it into their story. And on Twitter, at least, you just need to write a tweet and maybe you can add a link or a picture, but you don't need to attach it to yourself all the time, but you need to deliver other content on Twitter. And it's actually, it's a little off topic, but I just want to add that it's so interesting with what you can write and what is appealing for your brand. And if there are things that you should not publish, at least on your public Twitter, because a friend of mine was kind of not mocking me, but it's really funny. I I didn't understand a meme and this doesn't, doesn't happen too often, but I said, what is this? What do you mean? And she said, oh, I guess you've been on legal name Twitter for too long. 
because you don't understand that anymore. And uh, like legally and blue check Twitter. And sometimes I also complain to my friends. I said, you know, guys, I think I should open or create a second account where I can just tweet really, really random stuff because as a journalist, you're being held accountable to anything. And if it's just a snarky comment, just a snarky tweet, somebody will screenshot that and then take it out of context and say, you know what, and this journalist is working for you and I thought you're a prestige medium or I thought that you don't hire anybody. See what this person wrote in this kind of snarky tone on Twitter three years ago. So you need to be really careful. And I love Twitter. I also hate Twitter, but... I think sometimes it's just fun to tweet really random stuff. And some of my professors from Ohio, actually, they follow me. I don't think that they're on Twitter all the time. But then I stopped using the F word in my tweets, even though I think it would fit the tweet. Or I don't tweet any random stuff and memes or vulgar pop culture stuff anymore. Because I think, yeah, maybe this wouldn't look too good on my public Twitter. You need to think about your brand in some ways. Yeah, and you bring up that it's a big disciplining function. I mean, there is something deeply, I'm going to use the word neoliberal here, but like there is something there where like the same way that Zoom has been able to colonize our domestic space as an extension of our work, right? This is where I work now. So has Twitter kind of made all interaction a potential reflection of your work. And I mean, on the one hand, this is, of course, the problem in many directions. And I do think it's sometimes also a problem for people who lose their jobs for just, you know, thoughtless shit that they do on social media. But it is kind of fascinating. I mean, Sarah Jong, I guess, is the classic case of this, where these replies, these snarky replies that in the context were buried, you know, 10 replies deep in a maybe ill-considered flame war with some troll, suddenly keep getting sort of resurrected to discredit her work at the New York Times. That's a really kind of amazing thing. And I hadn't thought more about the question of searchability, but that's, of course, how that's done. That Insta, for all its faults that me, I think, outlined very well, at least it's hard to search. It's hard to sort of, if someone has something in their Insta story, it's not going to be around forever. I mean, I guess you could resurrect it somehow, I'm sure, but like, it's going to take some work. The problem with Twitter is it's all there. You can directly search for certain keywords and if a certain person wrote about certain keywords. Yeah, yeah like if someone mentioned the word Brett Stevens in a tweet that eight people liked, you're like, oh, well. Just for instance, uh, just a hypothetical example. Yeah, yeah, just uh, talking hypothetically. I want to be very clear. <laughs> me a question because I was curious about something you said because I have this impression I used to work in media I publish a little magazine my bills are paid by academia but I, I sort of have one foot in media still I think about media a lot and I noticed that in the United States I think there's strong bifurcation or a difference between 
journalists who still work at what we sometimes call legacy media institutions, who work at the New York Times or, I don't know, the Atlantic or prestigious publications. And then there are freelancers or people who have sort of an explicitly political or activist orientation, who maybe work at digital native outlets, maybe write for a bunch of different places. And this difference was illustrated very interestingly, I thought, with this conflict around the Tom Cotton op-ed at the New York Times, where a number of New York Times journalists of color were publicly somewhat critical, I'd say still pretty mild uh, in a lot of ways, on Twitter. But then there was a whole debate about whether journalists could tweet about their organization on Twitter this way. But anyway, I'd be curious whether you see a similar bifurcation in Germany, where there are some journalists at places like Zeit or FAZ or wherever who you know, have to appear objective on social media, and then others who are incentivized in the absolutely opposite direction to perform a strong brand or be provocative or cultivate attention. Because that certainly strikes me as a feature of the U.S. media landscape that's stronger now even than maybe a few years ago. A very striking feature at the present. Yeah, well, thanks so much for this question, because I think this is something that I really took away from when I was in journalism school in Ohio, because a journalism ethics class, the professor, he talked about the division in newsrooms, that there's news and then there's opinion, and that there's a clear divide between those two. And I think in the U.S., maybe you guys could talk about that, yeah, neutrality again, or or the view of how you need to be objective all the time. And I think the professor said, oh, we were debating that it's even some kind of conflict of interest when a journalist attends a rally because of a certain topic and if that's already controversial I think this is a little less strict or not even that strict in Germany and I have to admit that it's nice for me to see that because here a person can have a certain topic and is reporting on that and the next day this person could also write a very personal comment and their personal view on that and then it's okay if this person goes back to reporting again. This is not seen as conflict of interest, whereas I think in the U.S., people would already think that this is rather suspicious or that this should not happen. And I think people do put, this is my private account or not affiliated with employer, and then they just tweet whatever they want. So that is okay. And I have to say that I guess the people who follow those journalists they are specifically interested in their personal opinion. So that's why they are on Twitter. And I would say that in Germany, it's not that big of a deal. But whenever something controversial happens, and even as a freelancer Mm -hmm. for a certain medium, then people do get nuts, actually. They say, this is a whatever, IID, ZTF, public broadcaster, journalist, even if the person is freelancing, how can you hire somebody with such a strong opinion on this and that? At the beginning of the year, this actually happened. A debate was hijacked by the far right, and they were shaming one person who was freelancing for public broadcasting. They said, how can you do this? And instead of this topic again, instead of backing their people how do you say it, instead of just like supporting them, they said, oh yeah, we should let this person go. This has nothing to do with our values. Although it was just a freelancer and you're really precarious when you're a freelancer anyway. So this was dramatic. And just one quick thing that I wanted to add to how you respond, Adrian, when you said Mm -hmm. that you need to keep a nice picture when you're on Twitter, One journalist that I talked to for my thesis, yeah, it was about online misogyny. 
and how it influences female journalists and their lives and their work. Somebody said, well, sometimes I just want to tack back. I want to get back at those trolls. I want to get back at those reply guys, those debate people. And I want to be angry as well because they are so annoying and they are harassing me. But then she said, I am afraid to do so. She said, I'm afraid to do so because I think that people could just frame me as an angry woman again. And then they would say, look at this woman. She can't even keep her composure. How should she be working for such a prestigious media brand? And then she said she feels that she's trapped. She wants to get back at them because it is really annoying and hurtful as well. And she doesn't just want them to walk over her, but she doesn't want to be seen as an angry woman, although she's just defending herself. I think that's really interesting. I mean, the freelance question, I think, brings up something so interesting, which is that on the one hand, we have this kind of economy of prestige, right? Or this person writes for this important newspaper or this person represents this university, this student goes to this university, et cetera, et cetera. But then there's this kind of blindness to who holds actual power, right? Like if that person's the editor-in-chief of that magazine, like, yeah, you might want to mention that, right? And like, you might question if they do certain things online. But very often there's this kind of almost sort of guilt by association where there's a kind of deliberate obfuscation of really who's holding power and that this person very easily could lose their job over online interactions. Yeah, the question is like, do people not know it or do people pretend not to know it? I would think it's the latter, probably. You pretend you have a sense that this person has a lot less power than you can portray them to have. That's like always my pet theory of how, you know, discourses around political correctness work. You impute this incredible power to people that in your heart of hearts, you have to know don't actually have it, because otherwise you wouldn't pick the fight. I think, as you know, I share this theory of political correctness, Adrian, but I think <laughs> I think what this comes back to for me, again, is at least two things. One is the way in which our public language for talking about the marketplace of ideas, for talking about discourse, is egregiously, if not willfully, blind to questions of power much of the time. The tweet with eight likes does not have the power of Brett Stevens, for instance. Hypothetically speaking. Hypothetically speaking. Hypothetically um, speaking. You know, I sometimes joke, tweets don't fire people, bosses fire people. You know, it's not mobs on an actor network of a tweet and a boss that gets people fired, but it's, uh, it's, it's complicated. But I think there's a way in which these conversations proceed with no consideration of power, and that's why I think these questions about academic and journalism precarity are essential, essential to take head on. A freelancer who does not have the backing of an institution is under very different conditions. An, an academic who doesn't have tenure may be under very different conditions than someone else. And I think to take, you know, a different example in current debates about cancel culture, for instance, or student oversensitivity. Yeah. You know, I've had occasion to think about this, particularly on Zoom when it's now so easy to record everything. I've had occasions of feeling a fear that maybe a student will react negatively or, you know, a student might be critical of me. But if I make explicit what it is I fear in that moment, it is not that student exactly. It's an administration that I don't trust to take care of their employees necessarily or to prioritize the academic freedom of their employees and an academic job market in which to lose your job is a total disaster. You know, there are these material considerations that I think are often obscured from the conversations about vulnerable people who are being oversensitive and somehow, you know, weaponizing their vulnerability. Similarly, with journalists on social media, I think there's an almost willful 
leveling of these differences among different actors, a willful unwillingness to reckon with questions of power and political economy. No, but I mean, it makes so much sense because, of course, that is sort of one of Silicon Valley's greatest tricks in general, right? So no great wonder that this is how they designed their communication platforms, that in some way they allied power structures that nevertheless persist, right? If they undid them, great, that'd be lovely, but that's not really, really what's happening. And I think what's quite interesting, if I can jump in, is there is some transformation. I mean, women and queer people and working class people and people of color who might not have been able to write for the New York Times have built huge audiences on Twitter. Right. I think what often comes out around the debate me bro or against these moments of conflict have to do with, I don't know, older systems of power and privilege reacting against the ways in which certain actors who have historically been excluded can make new audiences there. It's an ambivalent, I think it's an ambivalent force, Twitter, in this respect. Yes, as a tenured faculty member who gets a little jealous whenever a graduate student has like 20,000 followers, I feel, <laughs> I feel this. I, I will, I will self-apply this. <laughs> yeah, but I would totally agree because there are good things about the internet and then bad things, of course. But I think one rather good thing is that when you publish online, let it be on Twitter, or you build an audience on Instagram, or you have a blog, this is not as gatekept as any traditional newsrooms, where as a minority, you might never be able to get in there, especially if you're working class and you just don't have those chances to collect a bunch of unpaid internships to get into those positions. And then maybe you write on your blog or Twitter and then somebody will discover you and give you a chance. So that is really nice. But since the internet works the way it does with proximity and how you can organize as a group also to attack people, this is really dangerous again, because since Anybody can be online, anybody can be attacked, but it is not anybody who gets attacked. It's those people who actually know discrimination from their offline lives anyway. People who get harassed, they are not surprised by that because they know it from their offline lives. But online, it is so much more severe because it can follow you into your living room as well. And it can be online for such a long time. And it's different if it's 100 people online that are attacking you or even more. I think it's not that likely that you'll get attacked, hopefully, by 100 people on the street. So people sometimes think that everything is so neutral on the Internet, and it really Mm -hmm. isn't. I wanted to circle back now to something that Neve brought up twice. We thought a lot about sort of journalism and academia and people who sort of professionally have to be online, which is maybe a dimension of this that some of our audience can relate to, but others not. But one thing I think that we all share is the effective economy, the effective dimension of all this, right? When you describe your reactions to these things, it's not so much like you're offended, right? It's you're exhausted, one is tired of the, the debate me bro is not offensive so much as tiring, right? There's this kind of claim on time, on attention, on our nerves. And I think that is something that no matter how much one needs Twitter or whether one is a journalist or not, like that feeling of enervation of like, I am left worse off for having engaged with this is something that I think all our audience can relate to. Can we talk about the effective with an A dimension of this? Well, I think one thing that I would like to say before answering the question is when it comes to hate speech and harassment, all those different forms of harassment, it can actually also hit anybody. You don't even need to be a celebrity or somebody with a large following because if you are online with your identity being visible as a woman with a very small 
account on Instagram, you can already be harassed. Like people, men can still send you a dick right. pic on a very small account on Twitter. If you just have your name or your picture, even people can still harass you. So it can apply to anybody. It usually applies to like the bigger accounts, but unfortunately yeah. anybody can be affected by that. Yeah. yeah. And with being tired, I think it was really overwhelming to me when I was, I don't know, 17, 18 and started blogging about my everyday life, but also just experiencing racism and sexism in a small town in Eastern Germany. And then later in Leipzig, where I still live, that I was really surprised by the people who read my thoughts and now where I became more professionally and now I'm a journalist and I left the blog behind and I'm even more online, even more visible. How many people project their sometimes stereotypes on me, but also their just their entitlement of thinking, this is a woman online now, she owes me time. She owes me an answer anyway, yeah. because since she's online in a public space, that means that I can have her time and her attention 24-7. This is really real and it is really annoying because I think what is the worst as a woman when you don't answer immediately and sometimes I just I just don't have the time and people will take it really personally because they have this entitlement of you owing your time and attention that they get really nasty actually and then they start using obvious misogynist slurs this is that part of misogyny that shows because they think well this is a woman anyway and she has to deliver an answer right now and those are so many different layers of how it is annoying to be a woman online there was a time when some people were pretty much obsessed with my work probably also because of the employer had that time that they went back to my blog five years back and posted old pictures they made videos about me and my work and my views and I just thought, why are you even so obsessed with me, Mariah Carey voice? <laughs> why would they dedicate so much of their free time to put a video together about me that is 30 minutes long and then put it online and then share it with Wait, their community? Wow. I mean, those those kind of things. And yeah. I think then you start questioning, do I really want that? I don't want to be harassed like that all the time. But then I think a lot of people go through that. They're tired and they're exhausted because being online can always mean getting attacked. But then I personally think I really hate those kind of dynamics, but what they want is pushing me out of the discourse anyway, and I won't let them have this. So yeah, I am yeah. exhausted, but it's a mixture out of being exhausted and being angry that this is a usual dynamic and that this is happening. I feel like I had a eureka moment and I'm really afraid that it's just me who's not realized this but what you're describing there is like kind of these are interactions you're not getting paid for these are interactions that people feel entitled to right this is care work yeah. ultimately isn't it which might be why it's so gendered we've talked mostly about people who are a little bit abusive or who are coming from a place of aggression and clearly the people making that video there's an aggression but of course it can also come from a place of fandom right and it, it doesn't make it much better honestly because the claim on your time and on your nerves is actually very similar Thinking about like, you know, discussions around racism where white people very clearly want some kind of dispensation from people of color, right? Yeah, educate me now. <laughs> yeah, right, educate me or like tell me this is okay. And like and then you kind of think, well, I mean, honestly, in terms of the time expenditure for the person in question, it doesn't make any difference what the intention is. It's still a giant waste of their time and it's not their job, right? They're not getting paid for this work. 
one quick thing about how time consuming it is. All the journalists I was talking to, they said that the newsrooms need people who do community care or community managers, because one person said that she experienced such harsh harassment. It was racist and sexist. There were even death threats. And she said that it shouldn't be her responsibility to go through that and then report to the authorities. So she asked some colleagues to do that. But everybody was really annoyed by that because this is not their job. Writing an article is their job. Producing news is their job. But they were so busy. And then she said that it also led to a shift between her and her colleagues because they thought, oh, why are we responsible for filtering through the comments with the death threats now? And of course, it's neither her responsibility nor their responsibility. There should be a community of social media management who takes care of that. Mm. But since there wasn't a person doing that job, one person's not even enough. Since there wasn't anybody taking care of that, it led to this huge shift in frustration with her colleagues. I think the way she reported that was that she felt really guilty that they had to do it. But of course, she didn't want to do it herself. Right. And then she also said she didn't want to hire her friends because they weren't getting paid for that. So if nobody takes responsibility of taking care of this, which usually happens on a news site, then it leads to a lot of frustration and, yeah, also this weird vibe, I guess, between her and her colleagues. Yeah. What you've been saying brings up so many, so many interesting questions. I mean, I tend to think that patriarchy and racism, certainly patriarchy, are older than capitalism. Nonetheless, we know that capitalism tends to reproduce certain differences and that it is no surprise that digital capitalism, sort of its latest reincarnation, would also reproduce and mobilize and commodify these differences. And so it's in a way unsurprising that in online space, people feel entitled to the time of other people, entitled to the care of other people. And I think the fandom and the menace being closely interrelated is something that really resonates with me. I remember a friend, Rose, uh, I was in an activist group with a long time ago, used to describe in street harassment what she called the cat call Doppler effect. You know, the sound goes, and then the pitch falls. But she says, you know, when you're approaching someone, and they'd say, hey, babe, hey, babe, hey, babe. And then, like, you stupid bitch when you didn't smile back right. or something. But that sort of switch of register, and I think often admiration and violence, whatever you want to call it, are quite closely interlinked with one another in physical space and in virtual space. I didn't want to, I'm not sure quite where this fits in, but since we're at a gender research institute, and from a feminist perspective, I do think one way that we might start to think about how these dynamics apply to people who aren't academics or media folks is thinking about how other professions get platformized. I've been thinking, uh, because of that screaming daughter you may or may not have heard earlier about care.com, Julia Tacona, who's a brilliant academic at the University of Pennsylvania, studies this. She studies how sort of race and gender differences get mobilized on care.com and the kinds of inequalities built into the platform. Karen Levy at Cornell studies intimate surveillance and health apps and how within intimate partnerships sometimes, you know, a partner spying on their partner's, say, fertility tracking data or whatever it is can be linked up into abuse. Julia Tacona likes to say provocatively, we talk so much about gig workers as like drivers, which is usually gendered masculine, but we know the biggest part of the gig economy is care workers who are mostly women of color. And so I think it's important to, you know, we're media people, we're discourse people, we like to think about discourse, yeah, but yeah. important too to think about how yeah. these dynamics and inequalities play out 
and other kinds of platforms that mediate other kinds of work too. This is the last thing I'll say about it, but Julia Tacona had this, I thought, very important, horrifying observation she shared with me the other day because she's writing something I'm editing, but about how care.com now has a fever check function, but only for care workers. Like if you're using the platform to try to find somewhere to work, there's literally just no way for if I'm trying to hire a caregiver to show that my family has fever checked and that we're not COVID positive. It's like these same ways in which capitalism sort of like pushes risk, pushes obligation onto certain populations are reproduced on digital platforms. And I think it's a really important topic for future feminist research, you know, and and one that people are already working on, but that bears more working on beyond the realms of discourse too. There doesn't even have to be that much language produced in order to create a fairly similar effect. I think that's right. So one Q&A question that came up that I think we might want to talk about, someone asked about the implications for young people who come up in this, right? And I think it comes up in two different ways. On the one hand, of course, it's the persistent worry about digital natives who grew up in all these structures and are remediated through them almost immediately. But on the other hand, I at least also think of it often as like, they're often the most intuitive users of this kind of terminology of critique. So they often can sort of point to these things that I'm like, you know that thing when and I have like a long description, they're like, yes, there's a term for it, it's this. And they're like, well, thanks. Is our language starting to accommodate the kind of power differentials that you were describing, Moira, or will we reproduce this? It's, that, it's basically, this is so central to the function of capitalism that it'll always exceed. Yeah, well, I want to hear Neon on this because you do like firsthand work with young people, right? I think you probably have more expertise in this area. Well, thanks. Yeah, maybe not too much expertise since it's not my main focus, but I've definitely worked with teenagers and I definitely think that teenagers use more of an edgy kind of language. And there was just this one case where I was really rather shocked because depending on the places where you are online, and maybe for young men, some of them at least, maybe it's more with some chat boards or some sometimes there's some spheres not only men but usually young men some spheres where they talk to each other more roughly that that translates to how you think about it and i did one workshop it was just overwhelming in that moment because it was a counter speech workshop where i taught some high schoolers on how to dismantle discriminatory language online and how to do counter speech and the first exercise was detecting discriminatory language and it was homophobia and then some death threats. And then I said, okay, God, what is problematic about that? And we went across the room and then they said, well, this and that, this is sexist, this is homophobia. And then I had this one example online on the board and it said, die, you stupid homophobic slur. And then that one guy said, honestly, I don't think that that's like too bad because this is how I just talk to my friends as well. So when you get to that level, you don't see that as a problem anymore. And of course, when you're rather an edgelord kind of teenager, and then somebody like me comes along and says, well, this is discriminating language, though, because this is obviously a homophobia or this is this is a death threat. This is not even funny. They just say, oh my God, you're so political correct. People should read your article on that more in The Guardian, right? (laughs) And you're so weird about it. You're just a snowflake or whatnot because this is a part maybe of being a teenager where you just think you need to be some kind of cool and edgy and you don't go with 
or you don't follow any rules, but there's a thin line between I don't follow any rules because I'm so cool and I start discrediting other people because I think I can just can, which relates to those power structures again. So I think usually I am just rather concerned about the impact on those kind of boards as well or any of those spheres on teenagers because when you think that this is cool because it also gives you some kind of power in your own community where they think oh we don't care about any like equality or those kind of things in feminism and I think this can be dangerous I don't want to say that any teenager that is on such a board would turn into an incel not at all this would be too easy but I think those places can be dangerous. And I think especially in Germany, they are rather underestimated when it comes to far-right radicalization and the gamification of far terrorism as well. well. It's an interesting thing you bring up. One of the Q&A questions registered some surprise that people interact with their friends on Twitter. It says, why not just use the phone and have a conference call? But I think the opposite might be true for some of these young people, right? That there is a kind of a tendency to pretend that these boards are conversations with their friends and not to think of them as a public, right? Whereas I think on Twitter, it's more the opposite. You interact with your friends, but you treat it as public. I think that's really that's really kind of fascinating that like, you know, I'm, we're just joshing around. It's like, no, this is a public board. This is a public sphere of some kind. Maybe not in the way that, you know, Habermas might recognize, but like it's real enough and be screen grabbed. And I do think that that's an interesting aspect here that to insist on friendliness or on these kinds of not quite intimate relationships, but on the fact that we're not just strangers can actually license a bunch of abuse. One quick thing about that and how every generation uses platforms differently because I am on Twitter and then maybe on Insta, but then the Generation Z, they are on TikTok and so on. And my brother, he is really young. And then he started having a TikTok account. And I said, well, this is kind of strange. And yeah, he is really, really young. I I don't want to say his exact age, but between 8 and 13. So that young. So, and he had a TikTok account. And I said, what kind of stuff do you even post on that? And then instead of like we do it, we message our friends and say, hey, I'm having a nice day. He did a TikTok of himself and said, hey guys, I'm doing this and that. And this was his way of communicating with friends, talking about how you communicate with your friends. And I thought, I don't know if this is, maybe he's doing TikTok wrong, kind of. He's so super young, but he's putting everything on there. And he had one very petty little video where he said, I don't like this guy, which was a picture of our cousin. I just thought, can you please delete this? Because everybody can see it that you're slandering our cousin there. So this is how he used TikTok then in a very public way without realizing that it is that public. Right. We right. do perform sociability in all kinds of settings, right? I mean, as someone who sometimes sits on the couch with my partner responding to each other's tweets and then with friends who are not there. I have suspected this. <laughs> I'm glad to have confirmation at last. But, uh, you know, not deliberately. I think um, different kinds of media technologies create different relationships to space and to be, you know, responding to both my partner and three friends who may be in three other countries, that is one way of having a conversation. I think what concerns me when I think about young people is folks who are still very young, haven't matured, not as experienced in negotiating different kinds of social codes and settings, doing this in a sort of unforgiving environment where things are stored publicly forever and in an environment in which they are algorithmically incentivized in some cases to behave badlier in ways that can easily turn abusive. I'm a big skeptic. 
skeptic of this idea that, you know, algorithms radicalize people, white supremacy existed before YouTube, this kind of thing. You know, it's not the case that it's an object fetishism to say that an algorithm radicalizes people. Nonetheless, it's clear that different social media have different kinds of behaviors that they incentivize and disincentivize. And to the extent that Facebook, for instance, not that any young person these days is on Facebook, I'm so old, but some of these, you know, a Reddit, it incentivizes engagement in different ways that might be harmful for children. I worry a lot too, I'd be interested to hear from you two Europeans about this, but about sort of the right to be forgotten, the right to have privacy. It's very unforgiving to have your entire childhood recorded in the semi-public medium. And I think it's authentically hard. You know, I think most people who follow my work might think that I wouldn't feel forgiving to the young person who said something racist or did something cruel, but I think it's difficult to grow up completely in public with sort of permanent storage that way. So I don't know what mechanisms for educating young people should exist. And of course, it's not any random strangers on the internet's job to educate a young person who's being obnoxious. But should their obnoxious comment be screenshot and and treated as a basis to rescind their university admission years later? I don't know. Again, it's this problem of context collapse and context switching and how easy these platforms make it. So our capacity to remember shitty behavior online is at this point perfect, right? (laughs) Like nothing is ever forgotten. On the other hand, there is a kind of social aspect to this, right? What society writ large feels is appropriate to dredge up does matter, Mm. right? good example of this is like sex scandals of French politicians versus American politicians. Like in France, it's like, why is this coming up? And I often wonder whether this is where we're headed, that essentially we have all the data, but we have a set of codes around what is usable and what isn't, right? The hopeful part of me, I'm always a little bit hopeful about these things. Hopeful part of me says we are already developing these codes, right? Very frequently when, let's say, a promising new politician sort of has their troubling online past revealed, people are very careful to say this is a pattern. This goes on for quite a while. There are years of tweets here. This really appears to be a deeply held position of this person, or at least was for quite a while. And I feel like that's like the beginnings, it's still kind of inchoate, but it is the beginnings of sort of an ethic where one says, yeah, one tweet, you know, should not lead to a rescinded offer. But we actually have the categories to sort of talk about like, well, what status does this have? Is this just like, stupid edgelordism at age 16? Or is this actually a kind of obsession that went from when they were 16 to when they were 25, at which point it would be worth asking, hey, so do you still feel this way, right? I don't know, Ni, how do you think of this? I mean, do you warn these young people or do you sort of suggest, think about what you're doing? When it comes to that, I just try to tell them just not to be assholes. (laughs) But I guess just from one workshop, they usually... I don't know if there's any impact I can have on that. And maybe it's just a school event that they need to attend to anyway. And then sometimes I think what was problematic for me is those people, they're maybe 14 or 15 and I'm 25. So there's not too much of an age difference there. And then they'd say, well, you're too young to tell us something about that, but you're too old to, to be cool for us. So that's sometimes the problem that I run into as well. But of course I try to to teach them about that. And then in the workshop, they tell their teachers, this is what we learned. But I, I don't know if they actually apply it. I was just thinking, and I have almost no lived experience dealing with people younger than college students on these issues. So I don't really know, but I was recently part of a workshop with the music journalist, and I think she'd be comfortable being called the anti-fascist Kim Kelly. 
And she was talking about the heavy metal scene and the ways in which folks in heavy metal have tried to make it not cool to be fashy or to be racist. And I think one point that I think she made in that context was that it can be useful to call out a fake subversiveness. I think so much about the frame of political correctness that's harmful is that it is a machine for making it seem as if things that are in fact the most normative things in the world, what could be more normative than than sexism and racism? Look at the world around us, look at distributions of wealth and power, what could be more normative? That it's made to seem subversive to state something that is in fact the most sort of old, boring, institutionalized opinion in the book. And so trying to to point that out, uh, that there are tactics for that in sort of the heavy metal and punk rock community for, for calling out what isn't actually subversive. And perhaps certain kinds of corporate language politics have made it issues seem just about speech in a way that's counterproductive. But basically, Kim Kelly was sharing these thoughts about how to make it clear that being racist is not subversive or cool. Mm. It's an old, boring very institutionally sanctioned thing. And I've thought a lot about those comments uh, in terms of dealing with young people since I heard her make that point. I thought it was a good one. That seems really great. And it gets us to where we started, right? The power of naming, the power of calling. I mean, we talk about call-out culture. That's literally what it is, is to identify something that seems to be sort of boiling under water a little bit and sort of say, this is what's actually happening. And if you're cool with that, then fine, you commit to it. But Something tells me that you wouldn't like it if you actually had to look at it in light of day. So I think we're basically out of time here, unfortunately. I want to thank both of you for this amazing conversation. I've learned so much. Thank you, Maura, and thank you, Ni, for being here today. Thanks so much for having us. Thanks for the invitation. The Feminist Present is co-hosted by Adrian Dobb and Laura Good. It's produced by Laura Good and Megan Kalfas. All of our original music is by Julie Herndon. We're eternally grateful for funding support from the Institute Named for a Woman in a Building Named for a Woman, the Michelle R. Clayman Institute for Gender Research at Stanford University, where we're especially grateful to our feminist colleagues Cynthia Newberry, Allison Dahl-Crossley, Natalie P. Mason, Jennifer Portillo, Wendy Skidmore, and Sarah Mersney. The podfather is Arlenir Anderson, Senior Associate Dean of Humanities and Sciences. Funding for this podcast is very much not provided by the following product, services, and entities. Blue Apron, Hymns. Casper Mattresses and That Stupid Wine Club started by two MIT grads. Follow us on Instagram or Twitter. We're Feminist Present on both platforms. And if you want to chat feminism, Miss Rona, or anything else, go ahead and write us an email at feministpresent at gmail.com. No rape or death threats, fellas. Stanford has really good IT support and we will find you. We'd appreciate it so much if instead you'd leave us a review, preferably five stars, on iTunes to help other folks join our discussion. Take good care out there. (laughs) 